Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast, everyone. It is March 2020, and I, if you have been listening for a while, I have been saying how I'm going to put these episodes out every fortnight, and I was really good for a period of time, and it's only really the beginning of this year, and I have fallen off the boat on that one, so I really apologize so many things have come up, um, but I'm here and I'm giving you another episode that is absolutely wonderful and they will keep coming and I will really try to keep them regular, um, but if it doesn't happen, I apologize, it's life. <laughs> um, but there are so many others out there now that everyone can have a listen to as well, but I hope that you keep coming back to listen to these and that you share these on social media, tell everyone. I try to aim the content for general public, for exercise physiologists, physiotherapists, medical professionals, um, and I hope everyone has been enjoying the information thus far. Today, I have a wonderful woman coming back on the podcast, Grania Donnelly, joined me back in, would have been April 2019, where we were discussing, just trying to find the title of it, uh, the Return to Running Post-Pregnancy Guidelines that she had done with Tom Goom and Emma Brockwell. So you can go back and have a listen to that one if you haven't listened to it yet. Today her and I in this episode completely nerd out on transperineal ultrasound imaging. Even if you don't have an ultrasound machine, I think it's a great episode just to um, have a listen on what kind of things that we can use ultrasound for as physiotherapists in the pelvic floor world. If you don't know anything about Grania, she is an advanced physiotherapist in pelvic health. She graduated from the University of Ulster in 2008 with a Bachelor of Science degree in physiotherapy. I apologize if I completely ruin some of these words. I'm taking her bio from the um, physio page of her company, Absolute Physio. She specialized in pelvic, obstetric, and gynecological physiotherapy in 2010, undertaking extensive postgraduate training and completing the postgraduate certificate in continence practice at the University of Bradford in 2018. She's currently completing a master's in advancing healthcare at the University of Ulster and is aiming to complete this in 2020. She co-authored the internationally recognized Return to Running Postnatal Guidelines for Medical Health and Fitness Professionals Managing this population. Once uh, once again, we did a podcast episode on that, so please head back um, and listen to it because it was really, really good. And she's the chair for the Pelvic Obstetric and Gynecological Physiotherapy Northern Ireland Specialist Interest Group, as well as a member of the Ulster Gynae Urology Society Committee. So I hope everybody enjoys this episode. Again, 
There will be links to some of the things that we talk about in the show notes. And I will leave you now with my conversation with Grania. I wanted to have you on the podcast again today so that we could talk about transperineal ultrasound imaging because little did I know until not too long ago um, that you are teaching lectures or courses in this like you're providing education for physiotherapists in the use of this plus using it yourself so uh, I thought it would be really good to talk to you um, so that we can share it with everyone but it has been my newfound love over the last few years um, especially it's my main outcome measure for my research so thank you for coming and sharing all your information Oh, thanks for having me again, Laurie. Um, I, as you know, I love and follow your podcast and was delighted to be on it before. So um, enjoy any excuse to get back and chat to you. And yes, I am. I've been using ultrasound imaging within my clinical practice basically for the last 10 plus years. Um, it started off because we were very fortunate in my health trust to have been bought a brand spanking new, really high-end, Volusion GE ultrasound by the, our gynecologist or your gynecologist just because there was money with the new hospital. So we got this ultrasound landed to our department and then no one knew how to use it. Yeah. And also there was no budget for training. So it sat to my despair when I look back now, it sat for several years without really being touched. Which one? Is it the seven? Until I kind of. Uh, oh, I don't even know which one it would. It would be about ten years old, okay, so yeah. Um, possibly, yeah. But it then I realised that we have access to such a good piece of machinery that I started to look into a bit about how physiotherapists are using ultrasound. There was very little out there ten years ago, and there was little to no training. There was very few physios in the UK using it, and um, I managed to contact a few. Um, and I knew that we needed I needed to get access some training. But I started to, I suppose, by want of a better word, I started to have a look with the ultrasound. So I was doing my normal physiotherapy assessments, and then I would see, can I see the bladder? Can I see anything? And I started to develop my experience, and then I started to access training. So um, there's p key people in the UK who have been using ultrasound for years, such as Jane Dixon. I'm not sure if you've heard of any of these people, but Jane Dixon, um, Ruth Jones, um, I think uh, Maria Stokes that I ended up contacting too because she had used it in some of her research. So basically, I ended up uh, starting to do some ultrasound, accessing some training, developing my skills and then over years of practice of that you start to really expand and evaluate what all you're using ultrasound for and what you're looking for so when and you, when now you say, I'm involved in teaching it. Sorry, I think there's a delay. <laughs> I apologise. So when I talk... Oh, there then, is, yeah. Yeah, sorry about you're that. Okay. Um, when, you are, when you say you started using it, did you start transperineal or did you just start like abdominal when you say you were using it back then? So started abdominal, so lateral abdominal wall and super pubic mm. using curved linear probe, which yeah. is really good for seeing the bladder. And for anyone in ultrasound or thinking about getting into ultrasound or starting out in ultrasound, if you know your anatomy well enough, pelvic health is quite a favorable place to utilize ultrasound because we have a very, it's hard to miss the bladder, 
using super pubic ultrasound so it's a really good user-friendly tool when used correctly and when used within the right scope of practice and I spoke about the role of pelvic health or ultrasound imaging in pelvic health at Physio UK this year or just last year actually we're into a new year now Um, and it was in a symposium alongside other um, key physiotherapists using ultrasound imaging across different specialities and it was really good to put pelvic health physiotherapy on the map with that and um, I suppose showcase what we can do and some of the advanced ways we can use it which we'll probably go on to discuss Laurie. Yeah, I would like to because, like I said, today we can focus on the transperineal ultrasound. Um, I, Before we get into it, I'd love to know your thoughts. So you just said about the suprapubic um, imaging in order to have a look at the bladder. And what I had found before I was ever using transperineal ultrasound, but having the ability to do VEs and so a vaginal exam and check and kind of put all my findings together. The women who had, you know, a lot of uh, increased tension, who had difficulty relaxing, you can't really work that out if you weren't doing a vaginal exam. Like if you just looked at the bladder and really nothing happened, there's so much in their history that should also help you understand that's what it is. But sometimes I, I worry or I'm not sure if other physios who aren't doing a vaginal exam as part of that, that they're going to miss that and then the treatment won't be, like what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I totally understand what you're saying and I have to say that I would agree because, you know, you're at that, if you're just simply going on a history and what you see suprapubic with what the bladder's doing and whether you see the base of the bladder rise or not, you're either you're you're at a guessing game as to whether their muscles are weak or whether they're tight and not releasing so um i think having the vaginal examination of the pelvic floor is key to what we do because i'm a real advocate for ultrasound imaging but it doesn't replace our skills and it should be an adjunct to our assessment and treatment it's some it gives us another element to add and to expand and to see visually what we've already felt and seen and take and and maybe got an idea of through the history. Yeah, so do you use it as much now that you do do transperineal ultrasound? So I do transperineal ultrasound with everybody and I would usually do it um, every time I see them because I just think the visual that it gives both for my evaluation and for the patient as biofeedback is just unreal. But with some people, if I'm getting a little more functional, you can do transperineal functional and I would utilize it, but I oftentimes utilize suprapubic. Once I know that that person has established the correct way to recruit their muscles and to let go of their muscles, it's a really quick way to access and give a quick evaluation of how brisk they can react, whether they can react to function or to task. So I do use it and I do use it with men, which I know we're maybe not focusing on today, but I really, with the prostate, um, men are coming to me I find that they really like that super pubic biofeedback and they're quite competitive with it actually so um, I do I would utilize it still so I haven't I haven't completely switched to transfer nail I utilize both oh that's really good to hear I was very curious about that because um, since learning transperineal ultrasound um, I just do everything with it and because uh, you yeah. you have we'll get into the 2d 3d um, 4d stuff uh, in a minute but yeah I just uh, anyway I I'll, very quick side story which is related um, when I first 
uh, got the ultrasound to start doing my PhD with, I was really worried about stepping on the toes of other health professions. As we are, like there's a lot of physio, especially in pelvic health, that didn't originate in physio and we have kind of worked our way in and I do think that we have so much expertise and there are so many things that fit in with our profession so well. I wasn't sure at the beginning about transperineal ultrasound. I knew here we had some urogynies that were so proficient and brilliant in using it and obviously there's you know the diagnosis of sinister pathology and all these other things that are completely out of our scope of practice as physiotherapists but for looking at pelvic organ descent or levator morphology or um, biofeedback when I got it a few years ago my supervisor at the time one of my supervisors Paul Hodges he's like so do you think it's useful clinically and I just thought I said I'm like, no, I don't think physios will be using it in the clinic. I don't think they should. It's not our business. And part of me, when I look back, I know at the time I said that because I was so worried about stepping on the toes of the medical professionals who were using it and not wanting them to be mad at us that we are enroaching on their territory. Um, and so, yeah, I was adamant. I was like, no, I don't think we're going to use it in clinic because we got this really good deal and I was going to have my family buy it for me for my 40th, <laughs> the ultrasound. Uh, nice. and then, yeah. And then he's just like, well, if, we, if you don't think it's going to be clinically useful, then we'll get the university to buy it. But yeah, since then, like I have used it, uh, you know, on every patient to really make sure that I am proficient in, especially the research measures, because it's so specific and picky. Um, but oh my God, I can't imagine not having it now when I sit there. And that's another mm-hmm. reason why I want to do this. And I've started doing some kind of private workshops. Wow, it is such a great part of our profession and when you go in the literature they have done reliability and validity studies with physiotherapists it is part of our profession it's not stepping on I don't know why I was so worried like did you ever find that do you ever see that like what are your thoughts with respect to our scope of practice as physios um, and knowing that you know there's also doctors that are doing it and should be doing it So that's a really good question and that fits nicely with the fact that I'm one of three physiotherapists representing pelvic health on a, I suppose, a a working group to develop the first scope of practice guidelines for physiotherapists using ultrasound imaging within the UK. And the issue is that there is no framework or there is no governance for sonography at the minute and with that there it is a very gray area and it is a case of whose toes you step on who should be ideally placed to be using this and we want to make sure that the right people are utilizing it and um, i think physiotherapists are really well placed kind of because of the things you've already described that you now can't imagine not using it and i think you don't realize that until you start using ultrasound mm. imaging. You don't realize what it adds to your practice until you then contemplate the idea of not having it. And and, um, and it's not that it replaces your clinical skills. It just adds another dimension. Um, I This is something we have considered quite in depth. My husband's a musculoskeletal physiotherapist and he's actually a qualified diagnostic musculoskeletal sonographer. So with MSK physiotherapy you can do a postgrad and become qualified as a diagnostic musculoskeletal sonographer so he can be diagnostic and write the support or write the report which is great we don't have that in pelvic health physiotherapy and so that's where the idea of scope of practice really needs to be defined because 
when we're doing a scan on someone, especially if that's transperineal, the patient needs to be sure that they understand what what we're looking for, what we're going to evaluate and what we're not going to evaluate. So they are not getting a check that has ruled them out for having fibroids or any pathology. And that needs to be clear because um, patients and lay people who don't maybe understand the ins and outs of the medical world may presume, oh, that's the same scan as I had in gynecology clinic and she's just checked me. I don't need to go back for another, you know what I mean? So it's really important that we establish a scope of practice um, and that my dream ultimately is that we will develop in the same way as our musculoskeletal colleagues have, because I think there should be university accredited modules for pelvic health physiotherapists to become more qualified in ultrasonography appropriate to our specialism. I don't see this as any different than now in the UK, we have wonderful um, advancements in midwifery where they're getting to carry out um, fetal anomaly scans and they're they're doing some of the roles instead of people having to go to the consultant clinic. So in the same way as advanced practice roles are developing within midwifery, I think that we are really, really well placed, especially when we move on to talk about say the levator evulsion injuries. I particularly am passionate that I think this is where physiotherapists need to step up because if someone has a levator ani avulsion and that's picked up on ultrasound imaging, it's you like the management of a levator ani injury is conservative management. It is maximize physiotherapy to make the most of the muscle function in that area. There's generally no surgical options um to be so to 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 be suspicious of a levator ani avulsion as a physiotherapist using our hands or or in digital examination to then have to refer onwards to a consultant to confirm a levator ani injury to then to be referred back to physio to me is not seeing the right person at the right time if you know what i mean i think that we need to streamline what's happening to patients and even to take the psychological trauma that could be experienced with that away because if a patient is being referred on to a consultant to then find oh it is that but we can't offer you anything I'm sorry I'm sending you back to physio it nearly sounds like a negative thing that there's no options for you that this is worst case scenario and you're back to physio whereas if a physio picks it up we know that levator ani injuries are high risk with certain populations women vaginal deliveries forceps deliveries in particular and so it should be something that if we suspect we can, if we're qualified, then access or to carry a transperineal ultrasound with a 3D, 4D evaluation and either confirm or see the extent of an injury and then reassure that lady and start management then and there and alleviate the fear component out of what we're now telling them. Hmm. And that was the main part that I was so worried about stepping on toes was actually the diagnosis of levator avulsion. Now, because it's one of our things we're looking at within the research, I have had to do so much training. And even still, years later, you're still like, ooh, am I in the right angle? Like, you can have false positives and and false negatives as well. Um, Totally. Can, so you, you kind of briefly touched on it, uh, you know, um, there's sinister pathology that's completely out of our practice to be picking up. So what kind of things do you find with transperineal ultrasound? So again, the ultrasound just being against the perineum, not going inside the vagina or inside the anus. What do you, what's it good for? What are we looking at? 
So first and foremost, as soon as you put that probe on and get an image, because for anyone starting out in ultrasound imaging, it does require practice and um, experience. So don't worry if you look at a screen and all you see is trying to make shapes out of clouds. We've all been there. And the more you use ultrasound imaging, the more you start to read it and understand it. And just as a side note, knowing your anatomy inside out is key because you are you have to be able to understand what you're expecting to see um, and what structures to, in order to be able to identify. But once we get a good image and put the probe on, you can really, obviously we're lucky that the bladder comes up with a lovely black visualization um, and begin because, because of that mismatch on the, what was I going to say? It was to do with the, yes, it's to do with the acoustic impedance. It's because the bladder it doesn't um, reflect or send back any of the sound image. So it, any of this, so basically where, what borders the bladder and any connective tissue structures around it, then do obviously send some of those either reflect or uh, like uh, transmit or refract some of those sound images. And because there's such a difference in it, it creates a really hyper echoic or really bright surrounding around the bladder and the bladder appears black. So it's really easy to see. So we're very lucky in that way. Um, and once we see the bladder, you can visualize it and visualize its position because already straight away, you can start to see if you think someone has some degree of anterior wall descent because it depends on how the bladder's sitting. Um, you can obviously see the urethra with it as well. You can see the rectum and you can have a look at the inner rectal angle and the beauty of it and the uterus, so position of the uterus and cervix and where it is and where everything is in relation to each other. We're lucky that we have a bony landmark when we do transfer anal ultrasound, and this is where our accuracy of anything that we're looking at really improves because you need a bony la reference mark in order to take measurements and to, I suppose, have that inter or intra-reader reliability um, because you take it from the same static position. So even if your probe angle might change, you're looking to take the measurement from the same position of the pubic symphysis to then carry out measurements. But... Um, what the beauty of ultrasound imaging is, is that it's dynamic and it's real time. So what we can see is if we're cueing someone to do pelvic floor muscle activation, we should be able to see what happens. And if someone can recruit their pelvic floor muscles, we should see the inner rectal angle change and we should see the rectum move towards the bladder. And it's a lovely movement and we can evaluate the quality of that movement, whether they're recru recru recruiting briskly to cue, whether they can um, maintain that contraction or whether it fatigues out. We can see if they go to release it, whether they can release it just nice and smoothly like they recruited it or whether it's quite cogwheeled is what I would call it, where it just kind of goes out in stages. And to me, that gives an idea of whether they're a wee bit um, hyper hypertonic. But what we're doing with the ultrasound, we have hopefully already carried out a vaginal examination. And so what we're seeing on ultrasound imaging should reflect what we find with our hands, basically. Um and you can do things like you can test and see how they respond to increases in intra-abdominal pressure. So whether they do a cough or a valsalva, you can see what happens to the pelvic organs. Um, you can, you know, you can use it, utilize it as, as biofeedback for the patient, which I think is really powerful because look at, we all know in pelvic health physiotherapy, most people do not know what their pelvic floor is, how to activate it, what it does and yes we can teach them digital vaginal examination we can give them feedback when they're doing it right but do they understand when we are not 
carrying out a vaginal examination, exactly when they're doing it right. So when they go home, do they know? Because it's an area of the body that we don't see and we don't look at and we can't really visualize. If we haven't seen it move often, we don't really have a visualization of it in our mind's eye. Ultrasound imaging provides that. And this is where it's key because once the I suppose, patient in front of us, if they carry out recruitment and we can tell them, great, did you see that? And did you see the rectum move towards the bladder? And did you see how you were able to hold it? Or did you see how it actually started to fatigue out? And they understand it. It just becomes a penny drop moment. They just get it. And they can see why, for example, we may instruct them to do the knack technique. If that's appropriate for their rehab, they understand why we're teaching them to do that rather than it just being an instruction with no meaning. Because they can see the difference of, right, when I drew in my pelvic floor and coughed, okay. And they can see the difference comparing that to when I didn't draw in my pelvic floor, what happens? So I just think that the, I suppose the, the, what it offers us is basically so beneficial. Hmm. And so what you've just been describing this whole time basically is the B mode 2D mid-sagittal position. So where you can see pubic bone, bladder, vagina, anorectal angle, and part of levator ani. Um, And you mentioned being able to see the uterus and cervix, which... I struggled with for a very long time and I had a sonographer say well you haven't earned your eyes yet you have to keep looking but do you know what as soon as I used like because the machine I'm using is 10 years old they don't make it anymore like it's Evolucin but it's one of the portable ones they've stopped making Uh, and then when I use someone's other brand new machine oh well let me tell you they are much easier to see I was like oh Uh, wow it's so clear I do (laughs) struggle with that still I have to admit that I can see the main body of the uterus with people I struggle to see the cervix I I have to admit and I do look for it I'm trying to train my eyes because there was a time I struggled to see the uterus and now I see the uterus no problem and so I'm I'm still again I'm still in my state I'm developing my skills as we go and but I think it's really important to be able to landmark I what I'm quite passionate about is that it doesn't become something that physios access willy-nilly or you just put it on to see some movement without having the clinical reasoning or understanding of what we're looking for and why and understanding the principles of safety with ultrasound because while ultrasound has been used for over two decades and there's no real known harmful effects of it we still don't have data for long enough and we don't know the ins and outs of the safety um, aspects of it but what we do know is that there can be a heating effect of the tissues if the ultrasound is penetrating that tissue it's statically for any any length of time so it's really important that it's never being held in one position for prolonged periods of time and that it's been moved and that it's not being held against someone's body when it's not needing to be held against someone's body so if you're just having a chat with the patient you remove the probe contact so that you're not having that kind of heating effect of the tissues and the frequency um some of the settings kind of feed into that as well don't they yes exactly when we talk about kind of safety in use what about what other things kind of should we consider we kind of briefly discuss some things offline but do you cover your probes when you're using them with patients absolutely for for transfer and ALR sound I do yeah yes um, and this is a huge, you know, we could go down a rabbit hole with this because, again, we've talked about the fact that there's no, at the minute, there is no scope of practice guidelines that exist. So there's a little bit of a gray area as to the ins and outs of how different therapists are carrying this out. 
Um, we are not using an internal probe, as you've mentioned already, like they do in gynae clinic, but we are contacting an area that does have mu access to mucous membranes and does need to be um, considered in terms of infection control. I have always been taught in the multiple trainings that I have carried out, I have also always been taught that a glove, so you need the ultrasound gel on the actual probe for it to transmit and to conduct it. But um, then I've used the glove as a barrier and then ultrasound gel again, and it's going against the outside, of, against the perineum. There is debate as to whether that is suffice enough or whether we should be using legit probe covers, which are a lot more expensive. Um, and we, this came up in my health trust actually because um, it was queried because gloves are obviously CE marked for hands and not CE marked for um, over a probe. Um, there was a debate about it, but when the infection control um, came around, they were happy with our practice and what we were doing. And interestingly, I attended an ICOG, I always get that wrong, um, the International Society oh, yeah. of... Um, you got me on yeah. that. So I attended their... Yes, they they put, yes, I was, we were chatting about this. So I went to their pelvic floor ultrasound workshop, which was brilliant in London. And you can actually access it through live feed or you can go in person. I figured I needed to go in person just because I needed to be there in case I wanted to get as much as I could out of it. Um, and it was a really worthwhile day. But they were using a glove over the probe as well. So it was reassuring to me. And again, everyone when does, I went to my yeah. postgrad, yeah, everyone does. But um it's really important though you take further infection control and precautions so we would always wipe down the probe between patients as well you have to be very careful with ultrasound probes public service announcement alcohol damages the probe and probes are expensive and you do not want to damage your probe so you have to make sure that it is a solution that is alcohol free you want to obviously get whatever solution you have access to or that's recommended in your area or your country or your um the place of work that I suppose has the most um, antibacterial or a, a wide spectrum or broad spectrum um, use for killing any of the um, any issues surrounding infection control. Um, and I'm trying to think what else that I want to say on that. Um, but my big advice in terms of infection control is always consult your local infection control department if there is one because you have to find out what fits in the governance issues of your own place of work. And always look up manufacturer guidelines for the equipment that you have and seek advice within your professional network. So we will be developing some in the UK, but it's really important that I love talking to the likes of you, Laurie, and um, other people, even there's Ramona Horton in the USA and other people, key people who are using ultrasound imaging quite a lot that I like to see what are you doing so that we're all keeping up with like current standards and practice. And even looking up like the guidelines that exist in uh, BMUS, is it, that has like the British Ultrasound Society would be what I'd look. I'm sure there's something similar for you in Australia. Yeah, we have um, a very big one in Australia and the name has just completely escaped me because I can see the uh, like ASUM. I know the acronyms. I can't remember what they stand for. Yes. Um, but yeah. But we, ac we actually do have um, some big guidelines that I'll see if I can attach them to the show notes. But essentially, um, you know, it breaks it down into uh, cleaning, obviously, afterwards, but then the level of disinfection. So there's low level and high level. And obviously, high level is for... Uh, intact skin um, 
but that you are also using, or sorry, even open skin, but mucous membranes is where it then, you know, becomes the, yes, it's not inside the vagina, but it's still in contact with mucous membranes. I think the debate here is more on which high level disinfectant is um, appropriate or uh, it's just changed over the last couple of years. So I think people are, you know, the hospitals have very, very strict guidelines on which one, which specific high level disinfectant you have to use. Um, whereas mm-hmm. I think uh, the rest of everyone else who's not in hospital, um, the, the doctors, sonographers, um, yeah, they're, they're using kind of different things. So we're still trying to work you know exactly what you need to do there was debates um a few years ago because more and it was really when we looked into the research of it it's more the research is uh, published in terms of vaginal scanning so yeah. intravaginal probes and that's where there's people need to make sure they're not mixing up what's happening because there were some um studies that demonstrated a potential like there was a few case reports of hpv virus potentially mm-hmm. being sourced from um vaginal scan ultrasound but that's different too like this probe is not going inside the vagina mm-hmm. it's external and and so i think we're le- lessening our risk even more especially when we're taking precautions that we've discussed already and that's where the big debate between these high-level disinfectants comes is HPV. That one, I yep. think, claims that it's the only one that can do it and none of the others can. And we kind of briefly touched on, but then what about our hands that are only using a glove and mm-hmm. not high-level disinfectant? Mm-hmm. And then what happens to us afterwards? Totally. Like, are we at risk of exactly. HPV mm-hmm. just doing vaginal exams? But um, that's a whole other can of worms that <laughs> I don't know how to close. Exactly. <laughs> Well, do you know what? When we finally get our uh, framework or scope of practice guidance out there, I will be in contact with you because we will have had to have covered that from a UK standpoint. And that's in line with our Chartered Society of Physiotherapy and the bodies involved in ultrasound like Case and a couple of the other ones. So it, it should be it should be really considered to a high level. Yeah. And look, what we didn't cover yet as well is who, which physios are okay to be doing transperineal ultrasound? Like what, you know, there's, there is no regulation about what training you need or don't need. So I, at least in this country, but I'm assuming in yours as well. So, you know, if, uh, do musculoskeletal physios who don't have any training in vaginal exams, you know, are they able to use it because they're not actually going in the vagina? Like, where are we drawing a line? That's a really good question, Laurie, and one that I may not be able to answer in its entirety, but I will give it a stab. So, yes. So basically where we're at, again, with that scope of practice framework is exactly, this is another question that we're aiming to answer. It surrounds the training and governance of using ultrasound imaging as a physiotherapist in pelvic health. Myself, Jane Dixon and Lucia Berry are representing pelvic health physiotherapy in this working group and we're aiming to implement a more thorough way of, I suppose, gaining your scope to practice ultrasound imaging, including transperineal. And that will essentially, in the interim, until we have a university accredited training program, we are going to have people like myself and Jane and Lucia Um, taking courses where there's going to be an introductory two-day course but they have to come back six months later maybe produce a short logbook and go through a little practical exam which won't be too scary but it's just more to see what people's clinical reasoning is how they're applying their skills because if there's no quality 
that people have to achieve with it how do we govern it so it's it's all about i suppose giving people more accountability for they're not just sticking a probe on someone and just working away they have to think about what they're doing they have to develop their skills they have to know what they're seeing they have to know what they're not seeing what they need to develop on and so that will be the first instance so we are looking to produce that a two-day introductory course with a a follow-up six months later where there'll be an exam and a logbook review and that's similar to something Jane is helping implement in I think it's um, in Holland that she's actually been over to so somewhere in Europe she's been involved with a team of physiotherapists helping them put a similar sort of program together when you talk about the courses that you're looking at providing, especially through the university, does that mean that if physios who have done years of, of training in pelvic floor rehabilitation, if they don't do your course, can they still use transperineal ultrasound? So if, well, at the minute it's unregulated, so people are just using it the same way as I started out. So like, you know, I can't be, this is not me. It's just trying to develop and create guidance on what will happen with there'll be a phase of transition. So if something like this comes out, people who've been using it will already be, that's the right way. It'll be from a point anyone new looking to get into it will be then expected to attain this. So in the same way as any accreditation comes in, there'll be a period of transition where people who were trained the old way or the way that was enabled to happen before a certain time point will be enabled to continue because that's the way it was. Um, It's a no brainer to understand that You need to, as I keep coming back to, you need to know the anatomy inside out in order to scan someone because you need to know what structures you're looking for. And I don't really see how, unless you're working in pelvic health, how you would have that in-depth knowledge. So to me, it's a no-brainer to think that you're going to have to be a qualified pelvic health physiotherapist in the first instance to carry out transperineal ultrasound imaging and, and that sort of advanced practice stuff. Because... It's not just as simple as you can start, you can make ultrasound, I suppose, transperineal, an entry level, quite simple, where they are just looking at, you know, pelvic organ position without measuring anything, but they're just having an eyeball at the pelvic organ positions. They might look at the quality of movement of pelvic floor. They might use it as biofeedback. But as you go through your years of experience, you will then start to get more intrigued and interested, and you'll be able to map structures out much more, that you'll be able to take measurements like inner angle measurements um, at rest and at max voluntary contraction. You'll be able to look at bladder neck height and how that changes whether someone's doing a valsalva or whether they're drawing in their pelvic floor or whether they're lying or standing, does that change? You'll be able to carry out retrovesical angle measurements which show the angle at the bladder neck. So, you know, there's so much. And what I learned on the ICUG um, pelvic workshop, I always traditionally carried out bladder volume pre and post void scans in suprapubic. Hmm. But they oh. taught us a way to do it transperineal. So do you do like the when you're there, using that. In, what is it? Do you the because the, there's so many? By? Yeah, yeah. There's so many conversions. Yes. Um. There's like yeah. just the it's that one. Yeah, horizontal, vertical, five point six. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone's yeah. listening what, and they're like, "What are you talking yeah. about?" From the mid sagittal yeah. view, when you have the view of the bladder, you pretty much just take the biggest distance horizontally of the bladder you measure it and then that's like your a line and then you measure the biggest vertical distance which is your b and you multiply those two distances in centimeters together and then you multiply it by this totally random number (laughs) 5.6 because there's been formulas and it's kind of rough you know it's average what the bladder volume might be but 
So is, and it was really interesting because when I'm taking my training courses and updating my slides and looking through literature to see what I've missed and anything else that's maybe been published since, when it comes to bladder volume scanning, I teach people how to do the bladder volume scanning both in suprapubic and transperineal, but most people will start off doing it suprapubic because yeah. that's the less scary version yes. and also it's a good way, you know what I mean? Yeah. But um it's really interesting because people can get really inaccurate measurements doing the suprapubic scanning too. Um, so if you get someone to do a post void scan and actually pee out the yeah. volume, it might not measure, it might not match what you've done. But there was a lovely study I got from many years back and I can't remember the author or whatever um, from it. It was quite an old study, but it demonstrated that obviously if we're taking a volume measurement, that's a 3D measurement. Um, and that it really depends on what shape the bladder is at that given time as to how you carry out a volume measurement. Because if we think of different shapes, whether that's a cylinder, whether that's a sphere, whether that's a pyramid type 3D structure, um, they all have different ways of measuring volume and in terms of where you put your lines. So that's really, I suppose, rang home. It made sense to me. So now I really consider the shape that I'm seeing on screen mm. in order to decide how I carry out that bladder volume measurement, whether I take the the horizontal and vertical line on the suprapubic transverse image yeah. or whether I take it on the suprapubic longitudinal image, which if you're not doing ultrasound, this will be total gibberish to you <laughs> as me and Laurie chat. But um, um, if you are doing ultrasound, that should make sense. And so I will maybe, I'll email you the paper that I'm talking about, Laurie, and you can put it yeah. in the show notes because I yeah. think it's a really interesting, again, in order to clinically reason what we're doing and not just do it because we were taught how to do it some yeah. way by some person this one time. Look, the measuring, when I've, when I've been teaching other people how to use kind of just basic 2D, um, I, I talk a lot about not measuring at the beginning because, again, you're just like, just holding the probe and learning how to scan without touching any buttons is hard enough. And then when you have to use oh, a hand yeah. and touch buttons and know where the buttons are, like, holy moly, that took me so long. Um, what I think what I've been really fortunate with is that the fact that it's part of my research, I do more offline analysis than with patient um, so I actually had learned on the software systems how to analyze and manipulate images and measure for like I can't remember what I originally had learned like 80 hours and then now all the data that I'm um, analyzing offline all the time that has significantly helped me work out where structures are and how to measure but then when you have to do it at the same time when you're with a patient my goodness that's you know it can it's be really tough. hard and that line from the pubic bone we still have some you know there's a debates in the research because it is arbitrary there's no end point to it uh, so yeah it's still taken with caution, but I, that's just from a research Absolutely. point of view. Clinically, I mean, it's it's definitely fine. But I just think, yeah, from research, there's so many other ways that they're looking at doing it that you're just like, wow, you know, they all have pros and cons. Well, actually, out of interest on that, um, because I'm actually involved in, in September, I will finally complete the last module of my master's in advancing practice. And for that, I'm doing a research study which in which I'll be utilizing transperineal ultrasound imaging. And I'm taking measurements of bladder neck height. Um, and I have been using that, um, I suppose, if you're looking at the posterior inferior aspect of the pubic bone. But again, 
the accuracy of any ultrasound image is only as good as the accuracy of the clinician or the experience mm. of the clinician taking the images. So there's that um, variable already. And it's also being sure that you're taking the measurement from the same place at the same time because mm. you said there's no end point to that image because I'm not getting a view of the pubic and the coccyx. I can't take a nice, um, what do you call the line? There's a nice name for the line between the pubic PCL. bone and the tailbone if you take the, the pubic yes, coccygeal yes, yes. line. Well, you get it in an MRI, but you can't really get it in an ultrasound. No, yeah. and so I don't have that. So I'm taking. Yeah. So if you were taking, if you were to do a study and take a measurement of bladder neck height, what would you use as your reference out of interest? <sighs> look, if you look at the literature, majority of it will just use the posterior inferior pubic symphysis and just draw a line, knowing that you know all your measures are probably the same because you're experienced in it. There is the one where they're draw, they're intersecting. Uh, two parts of the pubic bone which then means you need the entire pubic bone in the image which sometimes you then lose the posterior aspect like some women who have a lot of laxity especially at rest um, you can, you don't even have the anorectal angle in the image at the same time because exactly. you know it's only 70 degrees that you're getting access to so some yeah if you, but if you're only doing bladder I mean you can do there is some studies looking at that uh, pubic symphysis and trying to have two points because that's a big thing they want two points to measure from um, but it, it, I don't know it's really tricky and I think when you know you're reading some of the research which sometimes it's biased like the people who are saying this one's not good they have their own other method of doing it um, yeah but yeah you just I think one of the studies looking at the reliability of that method had decided that you know out of you know 50 images that you only got like 40% of them could you actually see the parts of the pubic symphysis that you needed to take the two measurements so you lose half of yes. the images like yes. yeah yeah it's it's, yeah, it's tough funny. and it's because I'm trying to think around the reliability this is totally getting off pace but um so like I'm gonna have a second person blindly measure from my still images again to try and validate mm. my measurements but but they could completely invalidate my measurements but that's I know, do you know what I mean? But um, it's just interesting when you say that. But there's no other. I'm trying to think of the most reproducible with at least we've got some form of static bony landmark. It depends on how accurate I am at taking it. But let's do it and see how it turns out. It's not specific. We're trying to be as specific as we can. It's still new. It's art, as most physiotherapy is anyway. Um, yeah. What One other thing that we kind of didn't mention yet was, you know, patient positioning. I My, my research is supine and standing, and clinically standing mm -hmm. has, you know, changed my practice. What do mm -hmm. you do? What do you get people to do? I'm seeing supine and standing. Now, the majority of my clinical work it would probably be the supine or the crook line that I evaluate them in. Um, I probably don't get everybody up and standing, but I do yeah. get a lot of women up and standing to see how that changes. And that can significantly change the position of all their pelvic organs. Like from At what rest. you, what image you see. Oh yeah. yeah like it's, it's, it's actually, yeah, it's completely. So it's been really eye opening to me and quite interesting. Um, but yes, I like to do both. And I think that this is the beauty that ultrasound imaging offers us is that it gives that functional evaluation. I just think it's I just think that element of it's great. And again, I think the visual feedback that a woman gets and how she understands how her structures change from crook line to standing, it gives them more of a buy in to rehab and why it's important that they, they maybe they're not overly symptomatic or it's not that bothersome. They need to practice. 
thank you. Coffee delivery. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thanks. Although it's like 40 <laughs> degrees in this room right now, so <laughs> drinking hot coffee is <laughs> going to hurt me. Um, yeah, look, I... I do everybody in supine and standing, again, just because I want to make sure when I do the research, I'm good at what I'm doing. Um, but I've also found, yeah, everything just sits a little bit lower when they're standing. Um, you know, there's measures of pubic yep. bone to levator ani that kind of gives us uh, an idea of some of that pelvic floor support, but especially at rest. And as soon as they stand, that distance, you know, can change and you see things sitting in a different position. I work a lot with um, athletes who do a lot of heavy lifting who um, have, everyone has a different bracing technique. So you can go through it, um, especially in a standing position and work out what's happening to structures and if there's anything that you you need to add in. Um, The, so I, I do, I feel like, I tried doing pop cue many times in standing and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's really dangerous i think hard <laughs> you're it's so With doing hard. The best oh yeah yeah i'm like oh man i don't want to be under here so yeah the ultrasound makes yep. it uh that much easier um the the one that i'm using so i you know it it's 3d 4d probe which me but you can access the 2d so i do a lot in 2d but i still do a lot in 3d 4d which we haven't even covered yet um so what is the difference between 2d 3d 4d so 2d as we've already discussed is your um is your 2d is your flat image basically it's only giving you that two-dimensional feedback and I suppose making an ultrasound image out of it so it's been great and it's the one that everyone will associate as everybody gets their 2d scan when they're pregnant at their 12 weeks Um, the revelation of 3d first became probably better known in terms of pregnancy again because there was the revelation of the baby face and the baby face scans and the 3D rendering but with that lots of developments have come and so 3D really adds in that extra dimension and adds in I suppose a more realistic real life um, image of the whole 3D structure that we're looking to evaluate and what's really important in pelvic health because we can get a good image of the, the levator hiatus and the structures involved there and we can carry out measurements like you're talking about in terms of bearing down and finding out um, what the I suppose the area of that levator hiatus is um, but it's really important when we're evaluating in order to screen for levator ani injury or evulsion that it needs to be the I suppose CT or um, computer tomographic slices that are taken with the 3D probe as opposed to 3D rendering which is just more superficial and um, which is what you use with the baby face um, and the 3D slices um, where it basically those computer tomographic slices mean that you can go through the layers so that you don't miss or get a false positive or false negative in terms of your and um, whether you're looking to see if there's if the connective tissue is attaching to the pubic bone and the sidewall of the pelvis um appropriately um and that's really really key and funny I was emailing I had before my physio UK presentation I don't have I'm not like you I don't have the luxury of having a 3d 4d probe I'd love one um I don't have one my ultrasound only does 2d but I was able to borrow from an ultrasound provider a 3D machine, which was wonderful. Um, and after I was, I'm trying to think, was I eight weeks postnatal? I wanted to see just 
what will a mile of eight hiatus look like? <laughs> and um, it was really interesting to get an image of it. And once I got the image and labeled it, I wanted to make sure before I used it on in a presentation that I was, because that was the first time I'd taken an uh, image like that, I wanted to make sure it was reflecting what I was saying it was reflecting. So I actually emailed Peter Dietz just to ask him, was this image, have I labeled it correctly? Is it accurate? And um, he said, yes, it was. But obviously I was using the 3D rendering with it. So lost the importance of getting slices if we're actually evaluating um, levator a injury. But you use this, um, you use 3D, 4D with the slicing, don't you? Yeah, it's the, so it's the only one that I've had the whole entire time. So that's why I'm like, oh, my, there's so much that I it's do brilliant. with it that I love it. Um, yeah, it's again, you can take levator and I thickness, area, um, looking at kind of integrity of, of the muscles and that again I had learned all of that analysis offline first before I then started learning how to get an image and then learning how to measure it with the patient there getting faster oh I know (laughs) and also then the 40 element of it for anyone listening basically adds um, and they they just take really rapid shots of it so you can nearly get of uh, what's like a video image of the movement um, or the the quality of movement that you're getting so you can get someone doing a pelvic floor contraction and see what happens or get them bearing down and see what happens Um, it's a slight as you'll notice too Laurie that there's a slight sluggishness or delay because it's Mm not real-time video image it's more slices of the pictures which give you that video cine loop but um it again i think it's really good to get an idea of what's happening it just adds another element to our assessment and evaluation Hmm. and that's what we use with with research because when we go offline we have all those volumes that we can run through and make sure you're you're in the right position so it's not as specific when you're in the clinic but um yeah look it's such a great tool and i still i'm i'm still so embarrassed about not standing up for myself originally but not knowing that I needed to but also just yeah just outwardly making sure you know that I was just I don't don't know what I was thinking when I was just like no 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 it's a hard life I get that because there is because um funny enough there was uh more in the sports world and and it's which is ironic because like as I say my husband's an MSK sports or an MSK ultrasonographer and diagnostic and has the qualification for it so he's more qualified in ultrasound imaging than I am on paper if you know what I mean because he can actually write a report but when we spoke to um, Emma and I spoke to a huge sports body in the UK after our return to running guidelines went out and they were really interested in what we were saying in our guidelines and then when we discussed pelvic health physiotherapy with them and discussed that a lot of um, pelvic health physios use ultrasound we were uh, point blank shot down that no physiotherapist should be anywhere near an ultrasound machine, that we do not have the remit or the understanding or the knowledge for it. And that really hit me back. And again, I I felt like I didn't stand up for myself well enough in that. I felt a wee bit shot down and I should have really stood my ground more and challenged that, but I didn't. Oh, I know. It's, again, hindsight is really funny, but, you know, not, not just because of the experience of using it, so much now but going through the literature and going you know what there is so much literature with physiotherapists using it and showing that it's reliable and valid and yes that that we can so that also maybe and even like your people and i when i went in that icog um 
training they were very pro physiotherapists coming onto that and using it they recognize that we have more time with patients and that we have that report and that we're doing evaluations with our hands blindly making you know we're using our mind's eye from what we feel to potentially pick up a levator ALA avulsion and have a high suspicion of it. So why would we not be able to actually add something that can actually start to validate what we're seeing? Mm. Um, and we're already well placed to be carrying out pre and post void scans and things like that. But the other thing that um, I use is some ultrasounds come with different functions. And again, you have the all sing and all dance and ultrasound. And other than 3D, 4D, I have a good ultrasound that has a lot of other features, including the likes of Doppler. Doppler um, so you can have power Doppler and color Doppler um, applications, which basically show a flow of movement or they look really like a flow of fluid through an area. Um, and I like to use it in terms of evaluating stress urinary incontinence so you know yes you can look at someone and ask them to do a cough or or an activity that makes them leak and look to see if you see urine leaking out the urethra but i think it's a lot more um comfortable for the patient and discreet to use the doppler application because when they cough you can see the the flow of fluid through the urethra um, which is a nice discreet movement and again because they have the contact of something against their perineum it doesn't feel as much it doesn't feel like they've leaked as much or it doesn't feel like it might be known that they've leaked and um, so i find it's more discreet but also you can have that validation saved you could save the cine loop you ha and you're able to document in your notes that you have um i suppose visualized genuine stress urinary incontinence which i think is key for physios because do we need to send everybody on for invasive urodynamics just to validate what we already know from a physio clinic? Like we know that people have stress incontinence, but oftentimes to move on to next step options, they need the validation of urodynamics so that they have an objective, quantifiable, valid measure. And it's invasive. And with some people, I don't think we need the extent of that investigation. And why cannot a simple, like if you visualize leakage through the ure the urethra via ultrasound using either the color the color power doppler that should be valid enough to be accepted as that's a that's a confirmed objective measure wow i've never thought of doing that i just look at urethral funneling which some you know is quite obvious sometimes but then to add that on top that yeah. would be awesome <laughs> i have the function i've just never used it yep try that try that and get back to me because it's really really good um, and um, I've got some really good um, teaching images or teaching cine loops that I use so if you ever need to see them um, I will show you them where it shows what it's, what, how you know or like a, a, a positive case of stretch urinary incontinence via the colour Doppler but the power Doppler is actually more sensitive to smaller droplets so what I'm aware of is um, the colour Doppler is really easy to see because you have the I suppose the two different variations Colors. of red and blue color yeah. and you can see it but with the power doppler it'll pick up more discrete leakage so when it's not so much of a together volume if there's just sprinkles of droplets you will see that so um yes play about with that and let's reconvene at some stage and stage and, and talk about that again well you don't really need the color doppler it's showing you direction you don't need to know direction you know which direction it's going <laughs> you don't you do yeah exactly oh, cool. but i just find i start i start off color because it's easier and um, i just find it easier to recognize but then that's obviously um so and you really if you're getting a positive on the color doppler it's definitely a positive do you know what i mean yeah. because to pick up that transmission yeah. down the urethra but it's really really interesting um and another thing to explore 
I'm trying to think, is there anything else that I would use that I wanted to discuss with you? I do lateral abdominal wall, obviously, and I like, you know, doing that even as part of part of pelvic health to see how pelvic floor and abdominal muscles are linking in or not. Yeah, I do that still via transperineal. I'll get them to do abdominal stuff. Um, yeah. You you just segued really well. It's teaching. So are you teaching courses or what are you doing? Yes, so short courses I've always done. So I've always done an introductory course to ultrasound imaging and pelvic health. Um, and traditionally that's been a one-day entry-level course. Again, trying to cover what I would have thought should be expected as a minimum in order to be then put in a probe on people, including the safety and physics of ultrasound, infection control, all the theory around ultrasound. I think you can't use a modality unless you understand exactly how it works. Um, and then going on to the basics of um, suprapubic scanning, what you're looking to see, getting people practicing using a probe, because for the first time that can be scary and they can watch someone demonstrate how to say measure or how to even get a visualization of the bladder. And it looks really easy. It looks like you just pop the probe on, the bladder appears, that's it. It. But then when it comes to the reality of it, because you have to nearly what I call fishtail and move the probe and to get the image that you want and to position it appropriately and even pressure, the pressure that you exert on the probe onto that person's skin, that can all make a difference. So people often get flustered when they can't get the image and it does take practice. So I would do an introductory course, but now, as I say, Jane Dixon and I have um, been discussing what we think the minimum I suppose expectation of training should be for someone to be going away practicing and we're trying to upper standards that a little bit more so it's a two-day course with a six-month follow-up oh cool oh that is awesome so you're gonna have to send me the link for that so I can put it in the show notes and people can find you and come and do it um thank you so much for your time and your brain and oh I'm so excited to see all this stuff and all these boards that you're on and everything that you're trying to do for our profession even though it's not in the country that I'm in you know that it spreads worldwide so thank you thank you so much Thank you for having me and thank you for all your expertise. I'll be picking your uh, brain when it comes closer to me starting my research project because you have the experience of ultrasound imaging in the research world, which is a lot more technical because we're taking accurate measurements. Um, And I really appreciate all you're doing to spread the word accurate, yes, yes, to champion, champion physiotherapy and pelvic health and ultrasound imaging. And I've really enjoyed this discussion. I'm so glad you're doing ultrasound imaging. I need people to be able to talk to you about it. So this is great. I know. Um, we'll, we'll have weekly meetings now. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed that. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Laurie Forner. On Instagram is now at Laurie Forner. So I have switched from at Pelvic Wad. Um, Facebook, I am here and there, not as much. Um, and again, you can support the podcast if you go to podbean.com. There's become a patron and there will be patron only episodes that you can have access to as a very big thank you. Uh, have a good day, everyone.